I don't know about you, but um, I think I was raised for a lot of years in the church in which I thought the most important time was the preaching time. That's when God really showed up. This morning, I feel like every aspect of what has transpired is really part of what it means to worship God. Singing, reading of scripture, children. Yeah, I'm grateful. Two different times in my life, I've been hooked up to IVs. And it sounds like a kind of run-of-the-mill experience, but I'll tell you, the direct infusion into my body in those two times was so significant. It was so life-giving. It was such a powerful experience. I have never forgotten it. Uh, the first one was um, during an Ironman race. Some of you know, uh, I used to do Ironman uh, races, uh, long-distance triathlons. Uh, it's a pretty long distance, two-and-a-half-mile swim, 112-mile bike, then a 26-mile marathon, all done right after uh, one after another. Never been any good at it. My goal is always to finish. But the, one of the first ones I ever did, uh, I, used to, I used to look for flat courses because <laughs> I didn't like hills. I used to look for uh, races that were run in the fall when it was cool. And so I had a flat, cool course I was running in North Carolina, only on that day, the temperatures shot up into the 90s, and in the course of 16 or 17 hours, I was dying. By the time I got to the finish line, the, the doctors that they have on site there looked at me and said, uh, come with us. They took me into the medical tent, they hooked me up, put two liters of uh, fluid into me, IV one after another. It was amazing. And here's why. It's not like they put that thing in me and like a couple hours later I started to feel better. I started feeling it while it was going in. It was like I felt life coming back to me. I felt so bad. And by the time they put that stuff in me, I thought, wow, I have never forgotten that. The other time was last uh, three years ago when I had cancer surgery. Uh, they had me hooked up for about eight days, pancreatic cancer uh, surgery, and then a couple trips back to follow up. And then, oh, this wasn't an IV. This was a feeding tube. They had a feeding tube go into me. Um, because of the pancreatic surgery stuff. I didn't eat for a month. For a month, I never ate any food. It all went in here. And I'm, th I'm telling you, it was an amazing experience. Both of those experiences sustained my life. That's what the Bible is. Amen. The Bible is what brings, infuses life into us. And uh, as we've looked at this study together, starting a couple of weeks ago with Marcus uh, preaching on uh, community, me on giving, Jay on pursuing his call for us, I want to spend a little time this morning talking about this role of the Bible as a life-giving IV for us. That's not optional. That we are desperate. If we want life infused into us, it comes through this. There's a sense in which um, I want to emphasize this topic of the Bible. Incidentally, Marcus was supposed to preach this morning, and he got sick on Friday. He called me up and said, can you speak? And I thought to myself, well, if you've been in ministry for 40 years and you can't talk about the Bible for 30 minutes, <laughs> I probably ought to quit. So I said, yes, I'll preach. But there's a sense in which this is a, this is a topic that is near to my heart because it has been 
such an important part to me. And you've often heard me say, probably in other circumstances, I can only live for God, we can only live for God to the degree that we know what he wants. And we can only know what he wants to the degree that we know the Bible. So it is not an optional. It is what sustains our life. It is the vehicle by which God is brought into uh, our knowledge and awareness. And so 1 Timothy 3 is the passage that we read just a minute ago. Uh, but I, w- I want to spend a little time giving a little broader context to that passage. Because if you know 1 Timothy um, 3, this is Paul's end-of-life discussion. You know the book? It's the, he spent a lot of years in ministry. Very difficult circumstances, very challenging, often life-threatening in order to preach Jesus. And when he comes to the end of his life, it's almost, I envision it. You ever been with somebody that you loved and hospice is called in? This is Paul on his hospice bed. And he's talking to people who are close that he loves. It's at that, listen, you don't talk about the weather at that point. You talk about what is most important. And this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. I, w- I would like, I don't want to put the text up there. I want you to listen to a man in hospice as he shares what's most important to him. He says to them, you, you know all about my teaching. You know my way of life, my purpose, faith, love, endurance, You know the persecutions I've gone through, the sufferings I've gone through. You know the kinds of things that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra where I almost died. The persecutions I endured. And yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And in fact, I just want you to know, keep this in mind, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. And they are the ones, that's what is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's telling them, hold on to this. Listen, I'm not going to be around much longer, but here's what... Promise me this. Will you hold on to this? Because all Scripture is from God. It's breathed out. It's useful for every aspect of life, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. If you want to be equipped for life, don't turn loose of this. For Paul, the Scriptures were not something you put on the coffee table. Um, it's not what lays on the back seat of the car from Sunday to Sunday. He's talking about the stuff of life, and he's reminding them of who they are. They are aliens and strangers in a war zone, the Roman Empire. As followers of Jesus, they're in a foreign land. And he says, let me tell you, you're going to need this to navigate this life. Why? Because they're exiles. They're exiles in a foreign land. They're not at a backyard barbecue, as John Piper says. They're in a war zone. 
The elders, for the last uh, couple of weeks, have been uh, reading a book, Faith for Exiles. We have a series coming up that we want to talk about this. How do you live for God in Babylon? How do you live for God in a foreign culture? Because that's what we are. We are exiles in a foreign land. And the book, Faith for Exiles, kind of develops that thought as he looks at Israel and through the uh, New Testament and as Old Testament as well, to say, uh, this is what God's people have always been. They have always been exiles in a foreign land. And so it really references the whole captivity of Israel. When they were uh, about 586, they were taken into captivity to Babylon. And they were taken out of their home country in Israel. You see where the red uh, arrow is? They were taken out of their home country of Israel and uh, taken out of their culture, taken out of their land, taken out of their language. They left the familiar and the comfortable behind, and they were uh, forced march, forced marched around the Fertile Crescent about a thousand miles to Babylon. And you talk about a difficult life was much different in Babylon than it was in Jerusalem. Now it wasn't the familiar everything that they knew. This wasn't warm, welcoming environment for them anymore. Now it's pagan everything. They're surrounded by everything that is different than their value system. They're immersed in Babylonian language and economy and language and food, stripped of their culture and everything else. It would be kind of like for us. This, this was a way to keep populations off balance so they didn't rebel against the Babylonian government. They would take people from one area and ship them, force march them to live in other areas. When you're in disarray like that, uh, it's very difficult to rebel. You're just in survival mode. So it'd be like folks that were coming from uh, Mexico and force marched into Canada to live. People who were taken out of Alaska maybe and uh, put down in the United States farther down in Florida or somewhere. In other words, it's a massive shifting of populations to manipulate them, and to force them to conform. The only thing is, when you go to Babylon, the Holy Babylonian experience, what you find as they're developing in this book, what you find is that there are folks who were not stripped of their faith. The book of Daniel. Here you see Daniel, you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You, feel, you find kids who were raised, people who were raised in the faith in Israel, and here they are, for decades afterwards, living in Babylon, and they, and they held to their faith, they held to their God. How is that possible? How were they not totally swallowed up by secular Babylonian culture? How did they live for God in a foreign land? That's a good question to ask, frankly, because when it comes to our kids, it's half the time our kids get swallowed up by culture just going to Boulder. most critical time for young Christian kids is when they go off to college. How have they been steeped? Have they been discipled in the Word? I would argue, and they're arguing in the exile, that they were steeped in the Word of God. They were discipled in the Word of God so that they knew God even when their environment, total environment changed. That's true not only in Babylon. That's true of Paul in the whole experience in Rome. Because as he's writing to these folks, he's, he's addressing basically the same thing. They were exiles. Now it's, now it's empire of Rome. They were exiles. They were sojourners. They were foreigners. 
They could have sung, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, you know. Paul knows that they are going to need God's perspective also. That's why he's on his deathbed, he's saying, don't turn loose of this. This is what you're going to need to survive. They would need God's perspective in that pagan culture, that pagan culture of excess. And he says, if you want to navigate the years ahead, don't turn loose of this. You can tell where I'm going. We are swimming in Babylonian water. America is no friend of Christian culture, right? The idea that this is a Christian nation, or ever was a Christian nation, is a fantasy. This world, as the old hymn, some of you know this hymn from uh, years past, this world is no friend of grace to help us on to God. There, there, has been, there have been seismic shifts that have influenced also the church, not only American culture. And even from 100 years ago, there was a little more common consensus of a Christian worldview. Even if people weren't Christians, they at least understood the Christian worldview. That's no longer the case. Babylon and Rome and present-day America are human societies that glory in pride and power and prestige and pleasure. The question is, are we aware of that and do we wake up and realize ourselves and do we teach and prepare our children that we are in Babylon and this is what we're going to have to know in order to not be swept downstream with the culture. The church has been hijacked and mesmerized and compromised and drunk with the prospect of political power. God, as Tony Evans has often said, God is not riding the back of a donkey or an elephant. And if we are to survive and thrive, we need to be equipped with serious discipling in this. A cross hanging on the mirror is not going to make it. Fish on the bumper, not going to make it. Frankly, it's my generation, I think, that has failed to disciple. Why is it that we have such a hemorrhaging of young folks from the church? I mean, the statistics are overwhelming. How many folks walk away and just abandon the faith. I taught Christian college for 20 years, and I'm telling you, my heart breaks to know the folks who just, that was a part of their past, and it is no longer. The question is, how do we prepare folks to live in Babylon? That's why we're doing this upcoming series in just starting in a few weeks, because if our goal is to produce Jesus followers who are resilient in the face of cultural pressure to conform People who will live a vibrant spiritual life, they cannot do it without serious commitment to the living word and the written word. So there are some challenges in our Babylon. Uh, the guy who wrote that book uh, also has written some other stuff. And here's what he says. It's very insightful on in this. It's probably not telling you anything new. He says, I know a lot of very intelligent and educated adults who were brought up in religious homes and who have been very nuanced and who have very nuanced adult views of all sorts of things like economics and history and politics and math, even other religions. But when it comes to the Bible, their thinking hasn't changed much from their childhood views. For some reason, growth to adulthood has bypassed their understanding of the Bible. I call it flannel graph faith. Anybody raised in a church in which you go to little Sunday school, got flannel graph, little pictures? That's, that's, how, that's how much arrested development there is oftentimes in people's understanding of Scripture. 
He says it's about the nature of religious training where, where too often, in, and I would argue in many of our circles, often staying in the same view of the Bible as that you knew as a child is lauded as a virtue, as a sign of strong faith that doesn't give in to change. But listen, has your faith grown and developed at all in the, since you have come to faith? If, 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 if I believe the same things in the same way, don't hear me saying something I'm not, but if my faith hasn't matured with me, if I have a sixth grade understanding of the faith as a 65-year-old man, I have arrested development. It comes almost from a position of arrogance, I would say. If the assumption is, I already know everything when I came to know Jesus at 6 or 8 or 15. If I already know everything, then to allow any kind of change or growth feels like I'm falling away from the truth. But the fact is, all of us have grown and stretched in our understanding. Frankly, the Christian church at one point believed that the earth was the center of the universe and that the earth was flat. Somehow, the church had to grow beyond some things. So don't, don't hear me saying that I'm throwing overboard the basic historic truths of the Bible. I'm saying, do we have enough understanding of our Bible and theology and our walk with God that we're not just totally uh, consumed by the environment in which we swim? People say to me sometimes that they haven't seen me for a while, wow, if we've talked a little bit, they say, man, you've changed. I mean, listen, I was saved in a King James-only church. So to say I've changed, uh, is <laughs> uh, when they say, wow, you've changed, I say, I hope so. I hope so. Amen. Unless we believe we were handed a complete theological catalog at the point of conversion, then we must grow and change. And if we don't, we are at the mercy of the culture in which we live. Amen. So when it comes the challenges to challenges to equipping disciples to live in this culture as exiles, as all of us are, this issue of biblical competency, the issue of knowing the Bible. I'm not the only one saying this. Plenty of folks have said Christians today just don't know the Bible very much. The familiarity with scriptures goes down all the time. I mean, look at the tests that they give. I mean, they're almost comical sometimes when you see the biblical literacy test. You know, people come back with answers like, uh, you know, Eve was created from an apple. The four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. Um, part of that problem is, uh, you know, media, screen time has replaced Bible time for us. Amen. There is a famine of the Word of God in the land, even among Christians. The other one that is a hindrance to us is the issue of suspicions around biblical authority. You can get a t-shirt that says, I got this right off Amazon. Question, <laughs> question authority. There is a sense in which Americans think that questioning or defying authority is our inalienable right. And church is not a place where you submit to authority or submit to Scripture for the purpose of growth and accountability. It's just a consumer mentality. If I don't like what I'm getting at church, I just bail and I go down the street somewhere. There's a mixture, I think, of mushiness or arrogance. Um, on the one hand, because there's such a kind of a bent against authority, oftentimes leaders and pastors and churches are afraid to, to speak truth to people because, you know, it might cost us. It might go somewhere else. The flip side of that is arrogance. 
the arrogance of anyone to challenge any authority. And here's, I told you I taught 20 years at university. I had an 18-year-old kid tell me one time, as I was teaching in a, lecturing in a class, it was 140 students in there. I was teaching on some theological issue. And he said, that's not right. Really? Why is it not right? And this was his response. Because I've never heard that before. Now think of this. Think of the arrogance that comes with an 18-year-old freshman, freshman in his first semester. <laughs> and, and you understand why I say this. I have a bachelor's degree, two masters, and a doctorate. I have been in school longer than he's been alive. <laughs> but that's, that's the spirit of the age. We don't trust authority, and we don't know the Bible, and so we are just, every man does what is right in his own eyes. Now, we ought to be afraid of some authority. You know, the Jim Jones, the cultic kind of stuff, authoritative pastors who rule. I'm not talking about that. What we've done, though, is thrown out the baby with the bathwater. And so we wonder why many Christians and many churches are anemic. They're not hooked up to the IV. They're not hooked up to the IV. Now I want to get to some passages. I'm going to talk about Timothy, what Paul says. But let me just say, to set the context here, uh, uh, in exile, it says, that kind of thing, where we find ourselves now has produced, because we have not discipled people in the Word, that has produced four kinds of exiles. Prodigals are folks who just have walked away from the faith. We've had some of those folks from here in Providence. It breaks our hearts, doesn't it? You look around and say, claim, whatever happened to those folks? In church anywhere, nomads are folks who claim faith but aren't really in church anywhere. They're just to believe any of it, but they just go out of habit. What Paul is shooting for in Timothy and what we are shooting for at Providence as best we know our own hearts is resilient disciples, people who are deeply discipled and impacted at the truth of the Word of God and it infects their DNA and everything that goes around them. And Paul says with that point, character is shaped how? By Scripture. And it is profitable, he says. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for a lot of different things. For example, teaching me what God wants me to do, the direction I ought to head, the value system I ought to have. It's profitable for teaching. It tells me when I take wrong turns. Anybody ever been there? Everybody, anybody ever been confronted by what you're reading in Scripture and the Spirit of God just spoke to you and said, you need to get your act together? Incidentally, should I say... When God is bringing conviction, it is always specific. It's never general. The work of the Spirit of God is to not say generally, you're a mess. It's to say, you did this, you need to repent of that. That's the work of the Spirit. Amen. For correction, how do you get back on track? And then how do you keep going? How do you grow? How do you continue to be the person that God wants you to do? One of, the, one of the ways that we want to do in this session that's coming up, and the elders are working hard to kind of get our own act together on it, is to say, how do we help exiles in Babylon live when we are confronted with so, such a variety of things that people have never had to deal with before? Technology and sexuality issues and, oh man, I, there's, there's six or eight or ten of them that we are wanting to address. Character is shaped by Scripture. 
lives, value system are shaped by scriptures. But now somebody invariably will come along and say, you know, I'm just not convinced that the Bible is all that. I mean, after all, it was written by men, written by people. So what do we hold? Why do we hold to the authority of Scripture? What's the big deal? And I would say uh, you could spend a whole semester on this, but I would just say in, in just hitting the highlights here, there is an external objective evidence factor on the authority of Scripture, and there's an internal subjective. Now, if you're so inclined, the external objective evidence is by, there have been tons of stuff written by it. It's uh, apologetics, you know, the transfer of the text and the reliability of the textual transfer and uh, authoritative, you know, the comparison of Dead Sea Scrolls and this. and that, You know, there's plenty of stuff that says Scripture is reliable and authoritative objectively. But I want to, and by the way, it can be rejected. People are not forced into accepting. I've often used uh, this transistor radio uh, illustration, you know. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're just, they're just, they just sound like silliness. Why? Because God's transmitting on the FM band, and all you've got is an AM receiver. Until a person comes to Christ, until the Spirit of God makes people alive, they don't have the receiver to pick up on this stuff. That is, a, that is an act of God that enables us to uh, respond where it means something. Do you remember a time in your life where the Bible didn't mean anything to you and it was just a bunch of dusty old, and then a, a time now when it becomes life-giving to you? Amen. So there's external evidence like this, but then, um, well, Second Peter 1. No prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. People just didn't sit down and just write a story, and now suddenly everybody believes it. Listen, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is just a little uh, sidebar I want to talk about just a minute for this authority of Scripture. That externally and subjectively, God saw, oversaw the writing of Scripture by people who had the freedom to use their own personalities and their own vocabulary and their own grammar but saw to it that they wrote what he wanted them to write so that he, because he knew that we needed it. The best, the best understanding of that, I think, is um, a person on a ship, you know. If we get, a, if we get on uh, Jerome's boat, you know, and we're going across the lake, he knows where he's going. He knows where he's taking us across the lake. But now I have a whole lot of freedom on the boat, right? I can walk over here, walk over here, go up the front, go up the back, jump up and down. I mean, I, there's all kinds of things I can do on the boat. I've, yeah, <laughs> I've got freedom, but, he, but he's taken me somewhere. That's the writing of Scripture. That's why you have different personalities and different vocabularies, but God oversaw the business of the whole thing. That's external kind of evidence. But there is even a subjective experience of it. We are convinced that the Bible is God's Word as we read it. We recognize His voice. The Spirit of God breathes it out. It's breathed out by God. And it's the work of the Spirit that gives me a sense that this is from God. This is different than when I'm reading the newspaper or Time magazine. The sheep hear his voice. He calls them by name. They follow him because they recognize his voice. That is a testimony, I think, of people who truly know Jesus, is that when they read the Bible, it, 
They sense that God is speaking through it. Now, sometimes you have dry days and sometimes better days, but overall, that's the general tenor of things. We hear his voice, we recognize his voice, and it has an authority to it that, that which I submit. I'll tell you another illustration of that. Of when you recognize the voice of God, it's like Mary in the garden. You remember, Mary went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. She was going to anoint a dead body. And she saw somebody who was a gardener and was wanting to know what he had done with the body. Jesus said one word to her. What was it? He said her name, and she instantly recognized him. Anybody ever call you on the telephone and they say one word and you know who it is? That's a spiritual awareness that is part of what it means to know God. We recognize his voice. There's a subjective aspect in which I recognize that God is speaking to me. I think probably the best illustration I've ever heard of that is... Um, Anne Lamott, who said, the voice, of, the voice of Jesus is kind of like if you're a, in a Moroccan market. Imagine being in Morocco in a marketplace and everybody's speaking Arabic around you. It's just a bunch of sounds that you can't recognize. And then you hear an English voice above the whole din of the marketplace. You recognize the voice. You hear it. You understand it. She said, that's what the voice of God is like. When there's some subjective experience that this is different than Time Magazine. Daniel in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. How did those teenagers resist being absorbed by, an, by a culture that they were in exile in? It's because they had been disciplined and discipled in the word of God, and they recognized when God was speaking to them, both in a written form and in a subjective form. Faithful disciples are handcrafted one life at a time through this. Sometimes it's collective, like this. That's why, we, that's why we always preach the Bible. Culture wants to form who I am into their model. And it's up to us as serious, all-in, committed followers of Jesus to do more than simply come together and enjoy great worship. Hallelujah for that. But it's more than just getting together and having a great time and say, ooh, the band was hot this morning, wasn't it? It's to be formed by the character of God so that we reflect him. Our identity is constantly attempting to be redefined and distorted here in the exile. And our challenge as followers of Jesus is to help each other develop habits that transform theology and practice from listening to and talking to God. So can I give some quick steps? This, this is not rocket science. If you and I are going to be formed to the character of God and not to be formed by the country in which we are in exile, I'm going to have to devote myself to reading the Bible. I would argue that we read the Bible regularly together in community. We just started this fairly recently. I mean, in a unique sense, maybe. Because Juan wrote a Bible study on the attributes of God, and all it is is it takes us into Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. You know what we discovered just this past Tuesday? We talked about it. In, in community group, reading and studying Scripture together 
gives us insight that I would never have gotten from myself. And I've been around the block for a few years in ministry. And I, I, I felt God was speaking to me through the other 10, 12 people that were in the room. To study scripture together is a vehicle and, and is a vehicle for molding our character. Well, read to do, not just to know. Having spent a lot of years in Bible college and seminary, I'm telling you, the woods are full of people who study Scripture to be smart. God is not interested in us knowing more stuff. He is interested in molding our character. Now, let me go through this very quickly. Because here's, well, the other one is get help. You know, we need when you get stuck on those passages that you don't have a clue and nobody else has a clue either, somebody has a clue. Get some help. <laughs> it's, in there, it's in there for some reason. God didn't put it in there for no reason. It's our responsibility to figure it out. Now, let me go quickly to this. The written word and the living word. The written word enables us to engage with the living word. We're not, we don't worship the Bible. We worship God. We worship Jesus. The Bible is the vehicle by which we get to know him. And so let me go through this very quickly. I wish I had more time. Between 2 Timothy 3 that, that drives us to the written word, to Psalm 119 that says the value of living and moving and have, have my character formed by the living word. Notice, this, notice the connection here. How can a man, young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to what? Your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Isn't it interesting that he ties those two together? I want to seek you. So in order to seek you, God, what do I have to do? I have to go hard after the word. Let me not wander from your commandments. I want to be all in. I have a, here's desperation. God, I am desperate for you. Internal aspect. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's an external aspect. With my lips, I declare. In other words, <coughs> this, I'm, not, I'm not a secret follower of Jesus. I'm not a part-time follower of Jesus. So it's like, let me tell you something. This is where I am. This is what drives my value system here in Babylon. Yes, I'm, listening. Yes, I'm living differently, but here's why. I'm not making this stuff up. Go public. I was talking with somebody about baptism just this past week and say that's what baptism is. It's a willingness to go public with your faith. Amen. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Really? Really? I can think of some rich people. Both who died this week. Kobe Bryant, $600 million. Ann Cox, head of Cox Enterprises, died yesterday. She's worth about 17 times what Kobe was. 16 or 17 billion dollars. Now, if I have a choice between their wealth and this, how hard will that decision be? I think we may wrestle for a bit, but if the fact were known, if you, if you know the value of what it means to walk with God, to know Jesus deeply, personally, to have him walk through your life, it, you, wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to wrestle very long. 
you would choose this every time. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. You do that? To steep ourselves in the word. I will delight in your statues. I will not forget your word. It is life to me to delight in the written word, to walk together with the living word. That is what it means to find joy. We don't, we don't just scrape by in exile here. It is a walk of joy, a walk of faith, a work of, uh, oh my goodness. That is what Paul was trying to communicate on his hospice bed. To say, guys, I'm not going to be around for long, but promise me this. Don't leave this behind. Don't leave this on the coffee table in the back seat. This will be life. Hook up the, hook up the life-giving IV to you. together. Father, we confess to you this morning that um, so often we neglect the value of what you have placed right into our hands. $600 billion or $17 billion is nothing compared to what you have placed into our hands. Oh God, would you develop in us a deep thirst a longing, a desperation for your word. We need it, God. We're not able to make it on our own. We desperately need your roadmap, your IV, your life-giving IV into our lives. I pray, God, this morning that you would just give us, wherever we are as individuals, uh, grace and strength to take the next step of whatever that commitment looks like. As we celebrate communion, look, God, in just a, a minute, we, we just think of, what, what value it is to us that you have called us to yourself, that you, that you walk with us. And I pray, Lord, wherever we are in this auditorium, that you would just help us take the next step. For folks who have never come to faith, God, help them to take the next step. Those of us who are adrift, to take the next step towards you. Those who need to get serious, more serious about the word guiding their lives. God, we, we commit ourselves afresh to you this morning, asking that you would again take over the driver's seat in our lives. Do it for the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, the good of his people, the good of us and our families. We pray in the name of Jesus.